Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mindset Advantage podcast, a show dedicated to insightful conversations in a world full of sound bites. Hosted by fitness coach, performance optimization coach, and national speaker, DJ Hilliard. These podcasts are designed to help you attack the gap from where you are now to where you want to be. The episodes take a deep dive into leadership, mindset, and fitness. Follow the show on Instagram at Mindset Advantage Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to episode 294 of the Mindset Advantage Podcast. This week, I get to chat with Karen Eber. Karen is a keynote and TED speaker and leadership development coach. Her specialty is helping her clients gain clarity, build leaders, build teams, and build culture one story at a time. Karen is also the author of her brand new book titled The Perfect Story, How to Tell Stories That Inform, Influence, and Inspire. As a speaker, I am slightly obsessed with learning more about how to tell great stories. I just, I know the power of, of listening to them and also telling them to an audience. So I'm searching for more guests and experts on how to tell great stories. And Karen was perfect for that. The first topic we got into was the science of what do stories do to our brains? Why are they so powerful and why do they work so well? Then we talked about the common mistakes and myths of storytelling. Then we went through Karen's four-stage framework for a brilliant story. After that, we talked about how to know if your audience resonated with your story. Then we went through some simple do's and don'ts of starting and ending your story. And then at the end, we closed down with two pieces of advice to become a successful storyteller. Whether you are a speaker like me or just somebody that wants to be a better storyteller with your friends, there's a lot of wisdom in this episode. And if you do find uh, this episode to be valuable, please be sure to leave a rating, review, and share it on your social medias. All right, time to uh, level up your storytelling abilities with Karen Eber. Let's go. Mindset Advantage podcast is brought to you by Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited for folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium with none of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. And it makes sense. You lose both water and sodium when you sweat. So both need to be replaced to prevent things like muscle cramps, headaches, and energy dips. Rob Wolf, founder of Element, is also a biochemist, New York Times bestseller, and previous guest on this podcast, and is someone I trust dearly. Element is currently being used by the highest performers all over the world, including athletes in the NFL, NBA, NHL, Special Forces, and the Olympics. There are several flavors to choose from. My favorite is the citrus salt, which is how I start every single day. And as listeners of the Mindset Advantage podcast, you can receive a free sample pack by using the link www.drinkelement.com slash mindset advantage. 
Again, that's www.drinklmnt.com slash mindset advantage. Go get yours now. Aaron Eber, welcome to the Mindset Advantage podcast. I've been looking forward to this. I love your new book. I'm excited for the audience to get their hands on it. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So happy to be here. So today's all about storytelling. Your new book is called The Perfect Story. I've been traveling uh, the country a little bit with my dad the last year, and I've been uh, quick to realize how captivating stories can be for an audience. Uh, For me, some of this stuff is a no-brainer. I understand it. I see it every single day. For the teachers out there, they probably see it and understand it every day as well. But for some others, Karen, catch us up. Why is storytelling so important? Why did you write a book on it? Uh, Let's just set the table with why is storytelling so amazing. I think we've all experienced amazing stories, whether that's a movie or a conversation or a comedian, like you just get drawn in and you're captivated and you have an internal story that's running alongside it, but you want to hear what happens. And there's a bunch of things that are happening in the brain that I'm sure we're going to talk about that create that. Um, It's just more memorable. It creates connections. It leaves you changed neurochemically. And that is far more interesting than someone just talking at you or presenting data or repeating the same story over and over. Because um, while stories are engaging, it's not enough to tell a story the way you tell it makes a difference in it. Yeah, I think we've all been in that moment before where a professor has told a story and we find ourselves either looking down and then starting to look up and lean in. It really just changes the room completely. You mentioned the brain. I would love to hear some of the science behind what happens to our brain. What's the chemistry like? What happens when we start to hear a story? Yeah. Well, let's start. Let's start on the high level, and we'll wade in. Um, and if this, if science makes you scary, rest assured, this won't be scary. This is the fascinating stuff. So a few things happen right away. As we're talking, this really small walnut-sized part of our brain gets activated. It's called Wernicke, Wernicke's area. And it is where we're taking in words through our vision, through our hearing, and they get compared in our brain to like our internal dictionary, our internal lexicon. And it's almost like our brain says, do we have this word here? Do we know what this is? Or is this something we don't know? And this is all happening super fast. And it's just pure comprehension. Words come in, they're processed, we understand them, and that's it. We're not engaging with them. We're not committing them to memory. And this is why about 50% of what you hear, you lose within 30 minutes. If you haven't, it might be 50 minutes, but if you haven't engaged with it in some way, it's gone, which is unfortunately a lot of lectures and a lot of meetings and a lot of interactions. But when you start to get engaged in a story, so if I talk about walking down the beach and the waves are crashing on shore, almost like a cymbal crash. And you can feel the the wind blowing across your face and taste the salty air on your lips. Your brain starts lighting up in these different areas. And you start from a real estate perspective, you start getting so much more engagement than just words alone. Your brain actually puts you in the story. There's this really cool research that's been done where if you are listening to a story, you have very similar neural activity to the storyteller. And it's called neural coupling. So this is why we sit in a movie theater, not moving, but our heart starts racing just like we're the character on screen because we feel like we are in this movie. We feel like we are a character in it. And so it gives you this artificial reality that lets you think about what you would do if you were in those situations, which has a big impact on your decision making. Well, that's phenomenal. So that that's the broader speaking. You want to take it one step further? Sure. 
Um, well, let's talk about decision making because this is perhaps one of the reasons why we should all be doing this more and not to manipulate, but to create understanding and connection. So we're taking in information through our senses and they get stamped with emotions. As we have experiences, they're stamped. So it's the same thing as when you take a photo on your phone and you swipe up, you can see the date, the location, the f-stop, the aperture, like all of this information is automatically stored on that image without you doing anything. Same thing happens with your senses. You're taking in information through your senses. They get stamped with emotions and they get stored in your long-term memory. So when you have a decision or an encounter and your body has to react, your brain is going to all those past experiences. I call it a library of files. It's almost like this big filing cabinet of, of experiences you've had that the brain looks to see what have we done in the past and how do we want to use that to inform where we're going. They've done these different research studies where they have taken people and put them in MRI machines, and they had to choose between option A or option B, and they gave them buttons in each hand representing each option, and they were supposed to press either button as soon as they made their choice. And because they were in the MRI machine, they could see what was happening in their brains. And so the the options would be presented, and they could see neurons traveling in the direction of the decision seven seconds before the person pressed the button and verbalized their choice. What happens is we make decisions subconsciously, but at the point we become aware of them, we apply logic and rationalization, which is why we think we're making logic-based decisions, but we're not. Emotions really are at the heart of it. And when you're telling a story, you are having someone, because that neural coupling, you're having them experience something that maybe they never have before, which gets stored in the long-term memory. And when the brain goes to make that prediction, it's pulling on those things that you've had the chance to experience and it's informing your choices that you make. And so this can happen with stories with data. This can happen if you're looking at an organizational culture of the behaviors that you want or don't want. This can happen in life in so many different ways, it's such a more dynamic way to understand, comprehend, and and use information. I'd be curious too, I'd wonder if like, you know, way, way back in the primal days, uh, we hung around a fire and we told stories. So it's ingrained within us is my guess. I don't know for sure. I'm not a scientist, but I think it's just born and deep inside our DNA that we crave storytelling and listening to stories. It's something that it's within us. It is. I am not a fan of we are hardwired for stories. Like to me, that's like saying we're hardwired to run a marathon. Like, sure, you have the physical components, but if you don't train and exercise, you're going to be in a world of hurt if you even finish, right? It's the same thing. Yes, you have biological components that allow for you to do these things, and there's much more of them that we can maximize. But just because you have them doesn't mean that you're an amazing storyteller. It's all how you learn to prepare and do, just like the same thing. You don't run a marathon without learning to prepare and do. And so I, I always cringe when people are like, we're hardwired for stories. I'm like, yeah, but it's not enough to tell a story because the way you do it is going to make a difference in the experience of it. Just like the way you train for a marathon is going to make a difference in the experience of it. But from a real estate perspective, all of the components are there to have much more dynamic comprehension. We're going to remember things much more. It creates this connection because different neural chemicals are released and it just persuades and influences the way we make decisions. 
So there's a, it sounds like there's a long-term component, right? You tell the story and the lesson stays in the longer term uh, um, of your brain. And then also, I think it just brings the lesson to life a little bit more. So instead of you talk a lot in your book about data versus story and combining them both, but when you tell the story, the data tends to come to life. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, everyone, um, you know, I do a lot of work in corporate environments. And so the bias is that you have to present data, you must present data. But first, data alone leaves ourselves open to interpretation. So it's just like putting up an inkblot. If I put up an inkblot, you're going to see something, I'm going to see something else, someone else will have a different idea of what it is. And the same thing happens when we put up data and don't take people through it. I've done examples where I'll put up like a really simple bar chart with a label to demonstrate that we make assumptions and that impacts our understanding. So if you're not taking someone through the data, we're each going to have different assumptions. And if we're trying to make a decision on that, we're not even in the same conversation because my assumptions about what it means are different from your assumptions. And guiding people through the story of the data brings everyone to the same common place. It doesn't mean that everyone has to agree with it, but you're starting at the same place to have a debate or discussion. When you don't, it ends to mass chaos and, and debates of like, what does this mean? What's the data quality? Who, where did this come from? Do we even trust the person giving us the data? And so I always say data never speaks for itself and data doesn't change our behavior emotions do. So when you have data, you do want to take people through the story of it. And really before that, you want to know what are the questions that, what are you collecting the data for? Are you trying to make decisions? Are there things you're monitoring? Are there questions that you have? Like, why are you gathering it? Because what really happens is we gather a whole bunch of data and then we start tinkering with the different views of it without ever stepping back to say what we're trying to do with it. So when you start with why you're gathering it, you then can look at your data to see how does this inform what we're trying to do and focus that and then take people through the story of that and what you did, what you learned, what you're still trying to figure out. It just leads to a really different conversation than me putting up a chart and saying, data speaks for itself. Totally. When I have experts on the show like yourself, Karen, something I like to do is talk about either the common mistakes or the common myths. For the listeners, it really paints a picture of uh, polarizing what not to do, what to do. You save that for more of the end of your book, but I'd like to start with that if you don't mind. So, yeah. Karen, what are the common mistakes or myths people make, whether it's common mistakes when they're telling the story, uh, common myths when they're creating the story? Uh, I'm sure you've seen in your tenure a lot of mistakes and myths uh, go wrong from some of your uh, clients or pre people that you watch on TV. Tell me about what are the common mistakes and myths. Yeah. And, and by the way, I make them too. <laughs> so that's a continual art that we improve on. Um, the biggest is probably that we're telling the story that we want to tell and not the story that our audience needs to hear. So we all have stories that we love of our own experiences or things that entertain us or things that, you know, we just think people like, but that isn't always what your audience needs to hear. That's what you like. And if you don't stop and take into account who your audience is and why you're telling them the story, what you want them to do different or think or feel different as a result, you're just kind of projecting your story. And it's not really that different than the uh, the relative at the holiday table that's like telling the same story over and over where everyone is seated at their seats kind of mouthing along because they're like, it's always the uncle, right? The uncle is like saying the same story for the fifth time and everyone's mouthing along because they know it. 
he's not telling the story for you. He's telling the story for him. And that's a mistake we make. If we're telling the story for us and not for the audience, then you risk it not being meaningful for them. And I always say the story starts with the audience, not with the story, even if you know what you want to tell, because you would tell a story differently depending who you're talking to. Why don't you say more on that, Karen? I love that. So you're going to tell the story differently depending on who you're talking to. So it might be the same story, but there's obviously different characters within the story. So maybe depending on the room you're in, you might tell it. I've heard I've heard people say that you, you can master a story when you can tell it through everybody's lens that's involved. So t- talk to me a little more about that. Yeah. So I'll give an example. So the opening story of my TED Talk is about this woman, Maria, that drops her phone down an elevator shaft. And she ends up going to the front desk to talk to Ray, the security guard. He is so happy to see her because she's the one person that actually stops and says hello each day. And she's this person that she's the the type of person that knows like your favorite restaurant and where you took your last vacation. She's not creepy. She just really likes to know people and help them feel seen. So when she tells him what happens, which her phone amazingly was still working, she could see that on her Apple watch. Um, he's telling her it's going to cost so much money to get it back because they have to call in a service call. And she says, you know, if it's under $250, go ahead and do it because it wasn't her phone. It was her phone, her driver's license, her badge, her like all her whole life. It would be a huge pain to replace. And he ends up calling her and telling her that he is going to call in a service call for the annual inspection of the elevator so they could get her phone back for free. And the same time that I, um, this story happened, I was reading an article about Walt Benninger, who's the CEO of Charles Schwab. And he describes the last exam he had at university, straight A average, walking in, expecting to ace this exam in his last business class. And the professor hands out paper, tells everyone to turn it over, and it's blank. And he says to them, I've taught you everything there is to know about business, except this one thing. What is the name of the person that cleans this room? And he didn't know her name. He had seen her, but he didn't know her. And that moment left such a mark on him that he vowed to always know Dottie's because her name was Dottie. He vowed to always know the Dottie's in his life. And so that's the pared down version of the story. But so I tell that story. And as I tell that, I'm giving you my perspective. I could tell that story from Maria's perspective and we would hear the anguish of dropping her phone and, you know, is it worth doing the replacement of all of this and how grateful she is for Ray and how kind he is. Um, You know, if we told the story from Walt's perspective, it would be the shame and embarrassment because his own values were in conflict. He, he knew he should have known and he didn't, and he felt bad about that and, and maybe how that would, carry out throughout his career. You know, if we told it from Ray's perspective, it would be feeling unseen and how people walk through the lobby every day and no one says hello, yet here's Maria. Or for Dottie, how do you work in this place where no one ever knows you? Or you know, it's you can take the same story and have the same plot points, but it just has a slightly different experience of it. And so if I was talking to a group of security guards, I would probably tell it from Ray's perspective and what that was like. Um, if I was talking to a bunch of leaders, I would tell it, you know, maybe from Walt's perspective or from the perspective I did. It really comes down to what is it I'm trying to have them feel as a part of this story and where do I want to get them to? And that's so fascinating because at first glance, Karen, you hear the story and you think about it just through your lens. But when you really dig deeper, like you just did, there's infinite lessons in this story from different people. I mean, 
people think they have this one story and there's just one lesson. Take another minute or 10 or hours to really focus on. There's more lessons than just the one. I'm talking to myself as I'm talking to you saying that. <laughs> yeah, there really, I mean, so often there is. And, you know, you and I have talked about how you can collect experiences as you go through life that you are intrigued by and might be potential stories. And I always encourage people, you know, build a list, have a place to put it. Don't try to remember it because you won't, but build a list without knowing how you're going to use it. Don't know the lesson, don't know the the exact story, but have these fragments of ideas because when it is a moment to tell a story and you're scanning the list, you can ask yourself like, well, what is a story that would help me create this, this meaning around the idea of trust? And then you realize like, wow, I, I wouldn't have thought this one story could be used, but this is perfect. And so there's always so many different angles that you can make and reinforce with it. Love it. So the number one mistake or myth is telling the story you want to tell versus telling the story the listener needs to hear. Another one in the book that I think is just so relevant is piling on irrelevant information. So I'm thinking of the person that wants to tell you a story about last Wednesday, but they say maybe it was Tuesday and they and the story takes forever. So tell me about piling on irrelevant information that maybe if we could go a step further, if somebody's listening, they go, oh my gosh, that is me. How can they practice that? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons why that's happening. The first is you're not working your story through a structure. If you have a structure, it makes it easier for you to tell and it makes it easier for the listener to hear. Whenever a story is rambling like that and you're like, where's the story? It's because there's no structure. But the second reason is, especially if it's a story that is from our own experience, we're trying to like put ourselves back in that moment. What day was it? What was I feeling? What were the exact things? Because I want to feel that emotion because I'm trying to give that emotion to you. And here's the hard part. Your audience doesn't need to hear all the things that you do. All of those, those details that were so meaningful to you won't be as meaningful to them. You can probably cut it in half. It's the specific details and moments it's going to draw someone in, not the full laundry list. And so I always say, you know, if someone's recounting a dream, yeah, I want to hear it, but I don't want to hear every single solitary detail because I wasn't in your dream. I didn't feel that, but I want the big pieces and give me a specific example. And so it's the same thing here of people tend to pile on these irrelevant details with good intentions of like, I just want you to feel everything I did. Well, that's not quite the outcome that you're trying to do. No one's going to replicate your experience, but you can still take them to a different place by honing in on something really specific. Have you found in your research at all, there's a prime time length of story? I think Ted does such a great job and you've been on the stage multiple times where it's kind of that, you know, 12 to 14 minute, 11, somewhere in that minute mark. And, and that keeps, and who knows me, I don't know if that's more for YouTube or forever, but is there a specific time domain that you would prefer when it comes to storytelling? Is there something that's too long, something that's too short? Yeah, yes and no. Um, Ted is a really interesting example because their talks are 18 minutes or less. Mm. And when they first started, they skewed towards the 18. Attentions have changed so much that if you open a talk and you see 12 minutes, you're like, mm, no, I'm not going to do it. And 12 minutes isn't long at all, but our attentions have skewed. Um, that said, I don't worry about the length of a story. What I worry about is how well constructed it is and how well it engages the brain. You can get away with a really great 12-minute story. I mean, comedians do this all the time. 
um, there's a comedian, Bert Kreischer, who tells this wonderful, wonderful story about, you know, uh, joining the Russian mafia and robbing a train. Hilarious story, full of off-color comments and all that, but hilarious. That story is like 12, 13 minutes long. And you were there every step of the way, like, and then what happened? And it's because of how he's constructed it. He puts in these really unexpected sentences. He says something completely opposite of what you expect. He leans into the assumptions that you have. And so you are right there with him because he's built something really meaningful. The challenge is that if it feels too long, it's probably that you have to do more work to make it engaging. You know, I always hear, how do I tell a succinct story? Well, what you really want to say is, how do I tell a great story, an engaging story? And it's harder to make a longer story engaging because you have to pull more levers more frequently than a short one. But it's less about time and more about how are you structuring this and making sure you're engaging the audience. My family and myself, I love uh, going to comedy shows, watching comedy on Netflix. And, you know, they are master storytellers. They do a fantastic job at it. I think one of the best things that comedians do and just master storytellers is they're able to tell a story, Karen. It might be that 12 minute story, but within the story, they can pause, tell you about something else or deliver a little life lesson. And then the magic is being able to go back and pick up right where you're at. And as a young new presenter, I found that to be the most difficult part. And I think that comes just needing more practice. But if you're able to right side, pause it, then deliver the lesson and then go back and pick it up, man, that's a gift. And that's something that, that I'm working on. I'm curious. Is there anything that any advice you'd have? Is that true? What are your thoughts on storytelling, pausing and coming back? Yeah, I think it is the hardest kind. Um, there's the, if people want to see an example of it, I know Mike Berbiglia has one on Netflix, and I don't remember the name of it. But what he does is he starts a story like describing what he was doing that week or recently. And so you just feel like, oh, we're getting the walk through his day. And he keeps getting distracted and like telling tangents, but then he comes back to it. And what happens is he's going through the story is you keep thinking it ended. I think he frames it as... um like a disagreement with his wife or something. And so you think he's just kind of talking about, oh, my wife and I were disagreeing or she was nagging or, and so you don't realize until you're like three quarters of the way through his whole set. Oh, he's been weaving this through as a story all along because he's placing these things that are interesting, but it just feels like joke, 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 joke. And they're all kind of related, but it felt like a walk through his day. And then you get to the end of the set and he brings it back to the story and he lands it with this joke that you're like, I can't believe he just like, I didn't see this coming. I did not realize that's what he was doing. Those I think are the hardest ones to do because you have to be mindful that you're building that story really well, but that you know when to pause and put other stuff in that doesn't leave the audience feeling whiplash of what's happening, where is it going? But you then you have to be able to get back into it without being confusing. And then it all kind of has to put a bow on it. I'm going to guess that probably took him years to put together. But book-ended stories are so good because the audience's brain says, I did not see that happening. And one of the things you want to be able to do when you're telling a story is both lean into the assumptions that the audience has and slow them down. So we want to lean into them because as you are leaning into assumptions people have, you are actually making their brains use less calories, right? You're going to put this fully formed image or reinforce what they already know and understand in their head. And they don't even have to spend the calories to think about it. It's like free real estate, which is amazing. 
But if you are just doing something that is so obvious that I can assume every single thing in it, my brain's going to check out. And so what you want to do sometimes is put in the unexpected sentence or the really specific detail or the I didn't see that coming plot point that is going to throw someone because that is going to hook them. And that's what allows you to keep a long story going, which is what happens in those. So when you say lean into their assumptions, Karen, would it be something as simple as you're probably thinking that I was going to take out the trash that night? Are you saying something like you're probably thinking, what does it mean to lean into their assumptions? Yeah. Let me try real time to break down um, in an example. So I was working with a leader who would like proudly tell everyone, um, you know, we were setting our annual goals and I made someone on my team cry. (laughs) And I was like, I don't think that story is doing for you what you think it's doing for you. He was not a bad person, but you hear that and you're like, you're the jerk. Who wants to work for you? But he, in his mind, had more to the story that he wasn't sharing, which was this person was just couldn't see how they were going to do it and was frustrated and felt like this was a ridiculous task. But he had this vision and together the whole team sat down and they mapped it out and he they, they took the goal. But it was also like, here's how we're going to get there. And here's how we did it and how they really came together as a team and they actually did it. But he was like telling such a small snippet that it's like, you look like the jerk. So your assumption when you hear this is, wow, you're a jerk leader that made someone on your team cry and now you're boasting about it. Mm. But if he told the story a little bit further of, you know, we were given this target that was crazy, um, so much so that, you know, the team got overwhelmed and someone cried, but I knew we could do it. And I wanted to show them how and to get, and if he just did even a few more sentences, you're then leaning into this different assumption, which is not that he's the jerk, but that he could take people through it and do it in a different way. So I'm not saying use the words like you may think. I'm saying recognize that your audience has their own experiences, their own library of files, and they're going to naturally think certain things. And so this is where testing a story is so helpful. You want to see what is it that they're naturally thinking and is that supporting what you're trying to do or do you want to counter that in some way? I love it. Okay. So common mistakes, again, just recapping, telling the story you want to tell versus telling the story the listener wants to hear, neglecting the structure of the story, piling on irrelevant information. I have I have my own personal myth or mistake that wasn't in your book, and I'd love for you to debunk it. Here's mine. Yeah. <clears throat> Getting vulnerable with you. Uh, sometimes I'm under the belief, I've been doing this podcast for five years. I've had some incredible guests on the show. They bring on stories of being paralyzed, being almost burned to death, life-scaring stories, things that make you want to cry, sweat. It's insane. I haven't had any of those types of experiences. So sometimes I wonder, Karen, well, geez, I'm not going to make somebody cry. This story isn't going to turn into a movie. It's not profound like some of these other people that I've had on the show. What is the myth or what do I need to tell myself when it comes to uh, comparing stories? I think in the in my heart, I know comparison is the thief of joy. However, I can't help but wonder, gosh, my story isn't as strong as John O'Leary's who makes his audience come to tears as they walk away. Yeah, strong probably isn't the right word, but yes, this happens um, in the speaking world, but it also happens in the entrepreneurial world where you get asked, like, what's your origin story? Why'd you start your company? And people are thinking like there was a divine moment where the skies parted and the light shined on you and everybody sang and you were like, this is what I was meant to do. (laughs) 
Um, I started my company because I didn't want to do any of the other jobs, like none of the above. So I say that you don't need an origin story. You don't need a moment. You don't have to have had a thing. And that doesn't make what you have to say any less meaningful. The reason those stories are really powerful is that those people are being vulnerable. When someone is vulnerable by telling a story or telling a really deeply personal, tragic story, we do develop of empathy toward them. So this can be your basic story, or this could be a, a really intense story. But the more empathy we feel, the more oxytocin that is released in our brain. Oxytocin is this bonding chemical. Um, it also sends a signal to the brain of this person feels safe to be around. This person trusts me enough to share this. And this is where that neural chemical shift starts to take place. The more oxytocin that's released, the more increase in trust that you actually see. So what's happening in these situations is because it is such a gripping, a tragic in many cases, tale, the empathy skyrockets because we are recognizing our lives are so different from this person. I am in an outgroup of experiences from what they go through, and that makes me feel empathy and compassion. Um, that doesn't mean you can't still tell a story that creates empathy and compassion. It's just going to be different, and it's not going to be reliant on something like that. The origin story, I find, is this myth that has come about because of things like this, where we see these amazing speakers or people sharing amazing things. And then you have social media where people are doing it and you hear it all the time and you just think, well, gosh, if I don't have that, then am I less than? And um, it's not needed. You know, I, I joke if we take it from the entrepreneurial standpoint, if Amazon was telling their um, their origin story, they would talk about why they started to sell books. But that's so irrelevant right now because Amazon is about way more than books. And so from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I always tell people, don't worry about your origin story. Worry about your why now story. Who are you serving now? What are the pain points you're addressing? What are the aspirations that your clients or your customers have? Same thing with an audience, right? When we are making choices, we're not deciding or buying because of a product or service or a belief or a thing. It's usually the aspiration of something that we want to be, do, or have, or that nagging pain point that we want to remove. One of my friends calls it punching in the bruise. Like when you feel that like, yes, I know I need to take care of that. And so those are the things that you want to be able to lean into because mm. that I'm really going to identify with. If you tell a story that punches my bruise of something I know I need to deal with and you connect me there, I'm immediately going to be with you because then I want to hear what you have to say. That's the difference. These stories where someone has had a tragic injury, I have not had. I can have empathy for it. I can imagine, but I haven't had that. Whereas you're going to be able to tell me the story that I can relate to because you're connecting to some of these things. And so absolve yourself of this belief that I have to have this amazing deep story for anyone to like me and focus on, yeah, I can really connect with people in these places that will make a difference. Thank you for the advice. I appreciate you saying that. I, I would love to hear, I like the phrase, identify the pain points. Can you dive deeper on what that means? And then how do you, how do you do that? Yeah. It's really sitting down with your audience and thinking about where are they at today? Where am I trying to get them to? 
and what might be an obstacle. And so as you start to do that, whether it's a business or an audience, you can start to look at almost there's a, a persona in the group that you are communicating with. So we do this in marketing of there's clients that represent the base or services, you know, same thing, right? You can say, um, I don't know, pick a soft drink company, right? Well, for the traditional sugar soft drink, the persona buyer is, I don't know, 30 to 60, whatever. But for the diet drink, it tends to be maybe female from this to this. And so what you're trying to do is just get really clear of who is it that you're communicating with and what do they share in common? And then you can get into, well, what is it that they want to do different? What is it that they... um are frustrated by? What is their day-to-day like? As you start to just put yourself in their shoes a little bit, you know the things that you hear from them. You can go on the internet, you can see different search terms, you can you know, go on YouTube and start typing and then you see what pops up. You get really quickly, you quickly get really clear on what some of those things are. And so I always encourage people like sit down, think about who your audience is and start to build a list of those pain points because there is usually not one all-encompassing story that is going to represent you and your brand. And if you have one, it's probably too diluted for people to connect to it as meaningfully as they will with one of these specific things. And so I always encourage people have a variety of stories, some of them about these really specific moments and some of them more narrow. So if we took the example of the, the leader that made the person cry... I would sit down with him and say, well, let's talk about people on your teams. What are the frustrations they come with? What do they care about? And so you would get a list of, well, their own career development, their day-to-day concerns of how they're balancing their work with life at home, the impact on their wellness. Like You could come up with a list of easily in a few minutes, probably 20, 30 things that could be potential things. I always say ideas come from constraints, not from wide open spaces. And so the more you constrain yourself by narrowing in on an audience and asking what might be true, the easier you're going to have coming up with different ideas. And then I think what happens is when you start to address those pain points, it starts to become a, uh, it's a we thing, not a me and you thing. We're almost on the same plane where I speak with high school kids, right? And so if I can start to identify the pain points to use your language and almost start to put myself into their shoes, they almost get this, oh, he gets me. He understands me. And the message, you know, you kind of create uh, or you get rid of that barrier of, oh, here's another speaker. He's going to talk down to me. It's more of a conversation of I'm with you guys. I might not be in high school, but I understand some of the things you're going through or you let them tell you maybe, Karen, what are some of the things you guys are going through? Let them speak so then you can identify some of the things they need help on. I always feel that the best feedback I get is when people say you're one of us after I speak. Cool. Um, one other idea, uh, I am a big fan of uh, chat GPT or AI to generate the ideas and oh. not to do the writing or the creating, but what it's doing is it's giving you something to react to. So if you say, um, what are, give me a list of 25 challenges that a leader has leading a team, you're going to get a list of things and probably 20 of them will be terrible. But it's going to prompt your thinking as you go through it of, do you agree or not? What else have you heard? And so it's a way to expedite. If you're finding that you're stuck and you can't come up with stuff, use it as a way to generate things for you to react to. And pretty quickly, you get your own thinking of, yes, this, not this. Um, I don't 
recommend it for generating any writing or anything like that. It's terrible for that, but it's excellent to give you ideas to get going. I love it. Okay, so let's get back into the book. So we've talked about the the hack, the hacking, the hacking the art of storytelling, finding the ideas, start with your audience, not with the story. Part three is about the conflict, building the story's structure. I think before that, before we do that, Karen, I think we need to go through what are the four steps to a brilliant story. It starts with context. Why don't you take it through through that, and then let's go into conflict. Yep. So four parts to coming up with a story structure is context, conflict, outcome, and takeaway. And before I go into them. The reason that I use this four-part structure is that there are some wonderful storytelling models like the hero's journey from Joseph Campbell that is the basis for Star Wars movies and, and Pixar has a wonderful model. But what I find is that those are great when you're creating fiction or you're able to sit down and work through it. Um, they're the same arc every time. And our lives aren't that tidy. <laughs> Too many instances for, of our For the stories. listeners that don't know that arc, could you could you explain that arc? I can't. No, it's too confusing. I truly, um, what I would say is that they each have different steps in different things. And in like the, the, um, the Joseph Campbell model, the hero's journey, there's a moment where a guide comes in and gives advice and, and not all stories have these components and not all stories fit these arcs. And so what I want to do is give someone a structure that you can use for any story in any setting. And then as you go through, there's different things that you can play with to, to create what's meaningful to you. They're great. However, I find that most people struggle backing their ideas into them. And so this is the, the way of giving you something to get started that you can then play with. Um, I don't remember the hero's journey piece by piece. That's why I said I can't do it. Um, so the context, what you want to do is write out a sentence or two for each of these. The context is giving you a sentence or two on the story setting and why the audience should care about it. The conflict, this is the fuel of your story. You want to talk about what the tension is, what is in need of resolving. The conflict, uh, the, that was the conflict, the outcome is what happens. What do you do as a result of the conflict and what happens? And then the takeaway is the piece that is often forgotten, which is what is that message you want the audience coming away, knowing, thinking, feeling, doing as a result? Um, this is almost like the the theme of the story, if you will. It helps you make sure you're landing the idea that you want. So, when you have an idea, you sit down and you write a couple sentences for each of these, you're starting to build a skeleton. It's helping you start to see the major components of the story. We're going to layer on a lot more into that, but this is not only going to make it easier for you to tell the story because now you can see the major pieces, it's going to make it easier for the audience to follow. We'll probably get into it, but I'll jump ahead just a little bit on the um, the conflict part. That's the fuel you talk about. Yeah. Uh, again, I I'm asking some of these questions, not because I have them on the side here, but because they're for myself. Karen, what's the response to somebody like me who's trying to create some stories? And I hear you say that uh, the conflict is the fuel, yet in some of these stories, the conflict is not life-changing. It's it's a, it's a, it's very low-key. It's not this uh, Star Wars type or this movie type conflict. Uh, right. What do you say to that? What do you say to that? Yeah. That's why I don't use those models because mm. what conflict doesn't have to be the most amazing thing ever. You know, when I was growing up on TV, they used to be like on this very special whatever TV show ever. Like it's a very special, very dramatic thing. Um, conflict is usually tension between two people 
that has to be resolved where maybe there's different perspectives, there's different problems, there's something there needing to be resolved. It could be between a person and a situation. Um, it could be between a person and their own values. And so it doesn't have to be this like most dramatic thing that would make the major plot of a movie, but it's something that isn't quite right that is going to go through a change or something will impact it. And that is going to be the crux of a story. Because if you don't have conflict, you really don't have a story. Awesome. Okay. So context, uh, conflict, outcome, and takeaway. Anything that else you want to add to that piece? Don't belabor it. This is not writing out every event of the story. This is meant to get you started and think of the pieces and then go from there. Um, this is not necessarily the order you tell it in, but it's the way you help organize your thinking. Anything else we need to know about the fuel, about the conflict? Um, are you leading me to something I didn't say? Nope. Just curious if you had anything <laughs> yeah, else before I no. move on to part four. No, or no, no. Nothing's coming to mind, but I wanted to make sure there wasn't something nope. I was missing. Nope. Okay. All good. I just want to get all my bases yeah. covered. So let's go to part four. So the outcome. So telling a great story, uh, something in the, in the book is how do you know if your story resonates? How do I know if this is a good story or not? I think it's good because it's a personal story and I, I enjoyed this part of my life. How do I know it resonates? How do I know it sticks? The first is test it where you can. And so the higher stakes the story, the more you test it, right? If you're just telling a story on the fly in a meeting, great. See if it lands. If you are giving a presentation, maybe test it with a colleague to see, is this making sense? Um, test it with a friend to see if it's making sense. If you're doing a talk on a stage, test it in a couple different places. I often use even social media. I can see what points people are grabbing onto, and that then helps me um, make sure I'm giving them emphasis. So first thing you want to do is test it, and you want to check with people of what is standing out, what is resonating with them. The second is when you're telling a story, if people come to you and they tell you stories in return, your story is resonating because we always have a story running in our head. I'm listening to you. I'm following you. I'm excited. And it's making me think of my own experiences or how I would apply it. And then I want to share something back in return. It's like, you've given me a story. I raise you a story. And that is a true indicator of that has happened. That has made a, a big impact. Um, you can often notice things in person when people are in a shared space together. There's a different energy that's created that doesn't translate quite as much if you are in a virtual environment. It will still, but it's not quite the same. A story together in a shared space that pulls all the right levers, you feel an energy shift in the room. You feel like, wow, we all just had a shared experience. So think of a concert that you went to and everyone was singing, your favorite song was played and you walk out and you're like high-fiving strangers and you had this magical experience together. Same thing can happen when you're telling a story in person. I'm sure this is very situational, this question, but how can a story end brilliantly and how can it end not so brilliantly? What are some of the endings that I think sometimes what happens with storytelling is the hardest parts can be, it's kind of like writing the beginning and the end. Once you get in a flow state in the middle of the story, sometimes it becomes a little bit easier, but maybe, maybe that's a good place to go. Karen is how to end a story, how to start a story. What is a good, a good ending and a, a good uh, start look like? What does a bad one look like typically? A good start usually has some type of hook, an unexpected sentence, a question, something that makes me want to pay attention. So I'm working with someone that's preparing to do a talk and I am trying to get them to start right in the middle of this meeting where they were given this task that they had to do. Like 
you don't need to set the context. Like I'm sitting there looking at this man and he says to me, whatever, or even starting with this sentence. And they keep starting with um, almost the way you would start like an essay. And so I'm trying to show them there's a big difference between starting an essay, which is going to have my brain tune out because that feels very predictable and flat. And oh my gosh, I, you're, I'm right there in this conversation with you. So you want to capture attention, usually doing something unexpected. Do not announce, I am going to start a story. Let me tell you a story. No announcements needed. You never see a comedian say to you, let me tell you a joke. You just jump right in and people are there. This is true for meetings, presentation, like jump right in. Every time I do a keynote or a presentation, I start with a story. Before I even introduce myself, before I even say my name, I start with a story and it's going to get the audience on my side. It's going to get all the neural chemicals flowing. Excuse me. It's going to get people choked up. Um, All of that makes a difference. So start unexpectedly that is something that makes people want to listen. I always tell people, know your opening sentence, your closing sentence, and your transition sentences. Whether you script or whether you do it from memory, having those make sure that if you lose your place, you know where to pick up, but your audience also can follow. Okay. So the opening sentence is yep. going to be strong. The closing sentence is going to be strong because your audience wants to know, is it over? Is she is she done? Um, and the transition sentences are helping connect ideas and make it easy to go through. And so those are always really important. So start with something attention grabbing, something that's going to get me. Um, don't start with, I have a story to tell you. Uh, let's go to the ending now. What, what What makes a good ending? What makes a bad ending? A good ending is going to be a firm sentence. If it's not clear to the audience that you're ending, then that like that they want to applaud. That do we do we applaud here? What's happening? Um, a bad ending is, and the moral of the story is, or the reason why, like don't no one wants you to talk at them. When you start saying those things or what you should take away from this is, you know, you're just giving unsolicited advice that no one wants. The beauty of a great story, they're going to get all of that if you have constructed it well. So I'm a fan of end in a positive way. Even if it's a really gripping story, end on a positive sentence and make it clear it's an ending sentence. You change your tone of voice. You drop your voice. You you um, make it clear it's ending actually just recorded the audiobook for my book and was reading a closing sentence. And he's like, okay, now do it again. Like you're ending a chapter. And I'm like, fair enough. <laughs> I had too much inflection that went up. Let's end this in a big way. And there's a difference between. So some of it is the nonverbal where the audience can really clue into this is different. Some of it is you're trying to make sure that idea lands. And that last sentence is often the one that's like the reaffirming everything you just said. Sometimes you'll hear, uh, whether it's keynotes or maybe even Ted or something like that, a natural um, ending might be, thank you. Thank the audience. And then they clap. Um, I would guess by what you're saying, you would say, that's not what we want to do. What are your thoughts on ending the words with thank you? I use it. Some people think you shouldn't. I don't think there's that big of a deal. Um, I often in my storytelling talks use the same closing that I have in the the TED talk. And it's the reason for the title of the book, which is don't wait for the perfect story. Take your stories and make them perfect. And then I wait because I want that idea to land. I use pause. 
And then I say thank you. And it is the clue to them to apply. Some people think you shouldn't do it. I think do whatever feels right. If you want to use it, great. If you don't, great. What you do brilliantly and what you just said was the power of the pause. And I Mm -hmm. think this is such a key component. I don't think we can go through a whole episode on storytelling and not talk about the power of the pause. Let's dive deeper. When I think people understand pause is important. Karen, when's a good time to use it? How long? uh, What does it look like? What doesn't it look like? Teach us a little bit about the power of the pause. Pause is a character in your story. Name her, embrace her, figure out when she shows up. Maybe it's he <laughs> for you, or maybe it's a, a different gender, which is completely fine. For me, it's a she. And together, we've worked together for years. She takes up space. I know when to give it to her. She knows how much space to take up. So I say that truly of you want to be intentional about when you use it because the pause lets the audience's brain catch up. It also stops all of those assumptions that are going in their head. When you get to the pause, the brain hits a speed bump and goes, huh? Mm -hmm. She stopped talking and whatever you just said lands. What you don't want to do when you pause is you don't want to say something big, pause, and then say, let me say that again. You don't need to say it again. You need to pause so that our brain as the audience can hear it. Pause works really well when you're landing a point. So what I will do in my talks is I'm getting closer to the point. I become even more animated. I speed up my cadence. I use more inflection. I get a little bit frenzied and then I stop and I land the idea and I pause and then I pick back up and my voice is usually lower and my cadence is usually slower and it's clear that we're in a different spot. And so I tend to play with speed and inflection as I get there and then changing my voice after. Where you have big ideas, you want to pause. And an easy thing is one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand. You probably don't need to go to five, but too often pause is like one, one thousand. And then we keep going. It's not enough. Great, Matt. I love it. This is so good. So the power of the pause, and you talked a little bit about inflection and and being animated too. I think a good story also, it helps to, um, one thing, a tactic that helps to deliver a good story is being able to get animated and use different voices. You talked about this in your book a little bit. Tell me about how to do that. Why does it resonate so well when you can get into the story and you know use your arms and hands the way that you saw it happen the first time? I love to help people think about the the graphics facilitators. These are the people that can draw all those images in real time when someone's speaking and you get this wonderful visual summary of notes from a, a talk. Um, the reason they can do it is not that they're sitting there on the fly listening and thinking like, what image can I draw? They have a vocabulary. They know that if it's thinking they're going to draw a light bulb with three things coming out of it. If it's um, physical, it's a barbell. You know, They've got their own vocabulary of when it's these words, this is the image I draw. Same thing happens when you're telling a story. Most often we have a, a um, constellation of things that we talk about that we would have some core gestures around. And so I talk about story, so I might use a book. As I'm doing that, I talk a lot about the brain and you'll often see my hands up around my head. But in my TED Talk, for example, I talk about walking into the elevator and I step forward. 
pushing the button. You see me push a button. The phone falls. You see my hand demonstrate a phone falling. When I'm talking about the certificate on the side of the elevator, I hold my hand up to the left side where the certificate always is. And these are just subtle things that are putting you in that story and making you be there. They were all planned and scripted because I look at it and I think, what can I do to bring movement into this that's going to help my energy because it's going to move those nerves around and I'm not going to be as awkward? Um, And how do I make sure I'm putting them in throughout? So anytime you're telling a story, come up with your own vocabulary of gestures. And if you talk about some of the same things, figure out what those gestures are for your own dictionary because you're going to use them. And then it's not a, what does purposeful movement look like? It's a, no, this is where this gesture comes in because it's trying to punctuate what I'm talking about. And it totally makes a difference, doesn't it? I mean, it totally helps. It, it's more natural. The the audience can see it a little bit better. Uh, it becomes it easier for you to tell the story personally because you're kind of playing this this play a little bit on stage. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So cool. Uh, this is a lot of fun, Karen. I always like to end my podcast with uh, an advice question. So for the listeners out there, something applicable. We went through so much today. I have so many notes here. The book is fantastic. One piece of advice for an audience member to become a better storyteller. One takeaway, what's one thing that they can do in addition to buying the perfect story? I feel like I have a couple. Um, The first is that storytelling is accessible. You're not a bad storyteller. You don't know the steps to take to create a great story. So stop this narrative of I'm not a good storyteller. It's like anything. You just need to to take steps and recognize you can do it. Um, The second is that we don't tell enough stories. People always ask me how many stories are too many. And I have not heard someone tell too many stories other than maybe the relative at the holiday table. It's that people don't tell enough stories. Don't edit your ability to tell stories. Don't like tell yourself this narrative of I'm not good at this. And oh, I, no one's invited me to tell a story. No one will. Unless you're at dinner with friends, nobody's going to True. say, start True. us off with this story. True. But stories give you permission, earn you permission to tell more of them. So don't wait for the invitation. Start working the steps and finding what works best for you. Awesome. Karen, this was a lot of fun. Tell us a little bit about the book. Where can we get it? When can we get it? And how can my listeners support you? The floor is yours. Well, thanks to you. We got a really good preview of the book. We touched on so many of the different pieces of it. There's a section that digs into the science and some things we didn't touch on that help you understand what you're going to be putting in your stories and when. And then it takes you through the process of finding ideas, getting clear on your audience, building that structure all the way through. How do you tell the stories? How do you tell stories with data? And make sure you're not manipulating and and navigating the vulnerability. It comes out October 3rd. It is available for pre-orders now. In fact, I have some giveaways. If you are pre-ordering before October 3rd, best place to find it is either your favorite place where books are sold, or you can learn more about it on my website, which is my name, K-A-R-E-N-E-B-E-R.com. Karen, this was a lot of fun. You taught me a lot. I'm excited to start using this on the road. So thank you for your time and wisdom. Thank you for having me. 